It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Again, we've been walking through a series called Soul Drift and talking about this idea of what does it look like in our modern day to have drifted from that which we are called to be and called to live. And of course, over the the course of this series, I've been looking at things like the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we've talked a little bit about idolatry and and altars. Uh, But what I've been wanting to do is kind of shift and kind of dive, kind of do a, a deep dive in one sense maybe a broad overview in another sense. Uh, but I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 over the next several uh, messages. And part of that reason being is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I actually think is a very neat connection with all the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, one of the things that Paul is doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament and he's talking about the idolatry that Israel was dealing with back in the Old Testament. And so in order for us to understand this passage, we're going to have to go back and look at several of the key instances where Israel had given themselves unto idols, which is forthcoming uh, in a a future episode. But then he turns his gaze and says, well, let me talk very specifically, oh dear Corinthians, about your particular issue. And he starts talking and addressing, using the Old Testament as an illustration of the very same problem that the Corinthians had. So though they lived in two different locations, though they lived in two different contexts in terms of history and time and culture, Paul says the very same problem that the Israelites had with idolatry is the same issue that the Corinthians had. And if I may extend that, it is the same issue we have. And so what I want to do over the next several messages is look, begin to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to dive deep in certain aspects, but it's not going to be like my Ephesians series where we're going verse by verse by verse. So it'll be okay. You will survive. And we're not going to spend the next, you know, 100 episodes uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 10. It's just going to be like the next 30. So just kidding. We're just going to do this for a few episodes. But what I want to do is I want to look um, today almost as as a global thought or a global perspective on uh, Corinth itself, the city, as well as just the book of Corinthians as a whole. Uh, and so, in so doing, I want to almost set the stage for where we're heading with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Everyone good? <clears throat> uh, so, there is this city, this ancient city, called Corinth, that I find rather intriguing. Uh, here, here's a quick, very simplistic uh, geographic lo- locator. Uh, it, it is a city on the isthmus between Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. That help anybody? <laughs> I mean, Greece, we all know, well, most of us know where Greece is at, right? Uh, but if you want a visual, here is the Mediterranean. You see Spain there off to the left. Uh, you see Israel down on the bottom right. And almost in the middle near Italy, you have this peninsula thing coming out, and you see a little dot called Corinth. And I'll put a box around it, and if we zoom in, what you see is Corinth sits on this little peninsula thing right between these two seas. And as you begin to look at this idea, see, just for visually, by the way, uh, Greece is this thing right above Corinth, this landmass. 
Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is the, the thing off to the right, which has been called Asia Minor in the days of Paul. So you had like all the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, if you remember that from the book of Revelation, uh, places like uh, Laodicea, Colossae, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Pergamum, all those things are there in, in modern-day Turkey. And then across the sea, you have Greece, so you have Athens, and you have Corinth over there. So when you look at Corinth, Corinth was a major seaport city for two main bodies of water, the Adriatic and the Aegean. Uh, it's also a main traffic route for commerce and culture. And here's what's interesting. Anything and everything could be found there. It was one of the major cities of Rome, so like Ephesus, Corinth, and Rome were some of the major cities in the Roman Empire. And here's Corinth, which was this a seawater port that everything was passing through on its way to Rome. And so as such, all of culture and all of commerce was this, it was like this big melting pot for life. Uh, here, here's what Gordon Fee says in one of his commentaries on the book of Corinthians. He says, Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So if you could take what we would associate with New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles and kind of merge them into one city, that would be Corinth. So this would be the place of commerce. This is the place of art. This is the place of twistedness. Uh, this is the place of everything's available. Anything you want under the sun is available in this place called Corinth. And so what you see then is on Paul's second missionary journey around 51, 52 AD, Paul comes to this city and we're actually told in Acts 18, it says that after these things, he left Athens, which is right across the little sea there, and went to Corinth. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul spent, out of his missionary journeys, he usually spent a really short period of time in each of the churches that he set up. Now, he spent a few years in Ephesus. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. And it's interesting, here he is in the middle of this city, in the middle of all this paganism, in the middle of all this perversion, and Paul is establishing a church. Now, what you find then is <clears throat> several years go by, and some scholars suggest probably three or four, that Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Now, why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, Paul is deeply concerned about the spiritual life of those in Corinth, but he's also addressing a letter that he received from that church, and they're asking him to clarify and answer several key questions. So they say, Paul, um, we have some questions about marriage, we have some questions about food, we have questions about this, and we have questions about that. Could, could you give some clarity as how we are to deal with these things? And Paul says, sure, I will be more than happy to deal with those issues. And it gives him a great excuse because he's already burdened for the spiritual state of that church. And so he's writing this letter, not as a, hi, how are you, kind of a letter. The book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is a rather intense corrective letter saying, <clears throat> you guys are off-center. You guys have gone adrift. You guys have taken what God has called you out of and have actually swallowed it. You actually don't look any different than the city around you. Would you ponder that for just a second? Paul is writing to a church 
that looks almost identical to the culture around it. And I don't know about you, but as I look at our modern church as a whole, we're not talking individual churches, I'm just talking about globally, you realize there is actually not much difference between those in the world and those in the church. Our lifestyle, our attitudes, our behaviors, our addictions, there is actually not a lot different between us and the world. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and to us, saying, uh, you do realize you are called saints. That you are called to be different and other than the world around you. That you are not just to look like the world. Yes, you may be in the world, but the world is not to be in you. And so Paul writes this incredible letter called 1 Corinthians as a corrective. Now, it is interesting when you look at the, the book of 1 Corinthians that most of us don't understand the overarching context of 1 Corinthians. We actually use it as a uh, choose-your-own-adventure, if you will, uh, of I, I, I really like that doctrine, so I'm going to lift that one out. Do you realize that most of our denominational distinctives get their arguments from 1 Corinthians? I'm going to stand for this. I'm going to stand for that. I'm going to stand for this. And the whole letter, which is almost ironic, Paul's whole point of 1 Corinthians is um, there is divisions in the body. Some say I'm with Paul. Some say I'm with Apollo. Some say I'm with Peter. Some say, and Paul says, <clears throat> hello, we are one body. Why are you so divided? And it's rather both humorous on one level, but deeply saddening to me that here we have these arguments of denominations in our modern day, and what is our proof texting from? Typically from 1 Corinthians. Well, see, this is what it says. And I'm like, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, stop doing that. And he's using a variety of illustrations to say, look, you have div divisiveness and, and derision, and you have this separation going on with you, and in fact, you're looking just like the world. Does this make any sense? So he's appealing to the church, and he says, do you know what the heart of the church is supposed to be? Love. That you are to be set apart and different and other than the world, and yet we are to treat each other with tremendous love. Which is one of the very things that we are not doing in the modern church. Now, one other just point of reference for the for the book as a whole is and this just tickles my heart because i love the book of ephesians but paul is writing the letter to to the corinthians the first letter to the corinthians from ephesus as he says in first corinthians 16 8 he says but i will remain in ephesus until pentecost so here he is in ephesus and he's writing to the church in corinth across the sea giving this overwhelming heartbreaking exhortation for them to turn to christ so let me give you a quick overview of the book of 1 Corinthians, because I think this is going to help us understand 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In other words, in good Bible study, you can't just pick out a verse, or you can't just pick out a chapter without looking at the overarching context. And so as good students of the Word, we don't just pull out one little passage or even one chapter. We must dive into it and looking at the context of what the author is doing as a whole. So he's not just randomly putting... 1 Corinthians 10 in here and just saying, all right, if you want to read that one, just read that. 
He's saying, I have an overarching argument. I have a thrust going on in the book, and you need to see everything in light of the, the big picture. So let's just quickly look at the big picture. Uh, here's what one of the commentators said. He says, if Ephesians is a letter concerned with the universal church, in other words, it's written to the body of Christ as a whole, 1 Corinthians is pointedly concerned with the local church. If anyone thinks his church has more than its share of riffraff and woe, he need only turn to this letter and its companion, 2 Corinthians, to put his problems in perspective. In other words, what he's saying is, if you think your church has issues, just read the book of Corinthians. And you'll be like, I'm encouraged. My church really doesn't have that many problems. <laughs> uh, he goes on and says, 1 Corinthians provides a glimpse of life inside one first century church. And far from saintly it was. Yet that is the reason Paul wrote this letter. To make positional sanctification practical. The spirit of the world seemed more influential in the Corinthian church than the spirit of God. In other words, what he's saying is, the church was living more like the city of Corinth than like Jesus. And so what Paul's actually doing is saying, you know what holiness actually looks like? Do you know what the practicality of sanctification is supposed to look like in your life? Looks like this. And he begins to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, one of the Bible handbooks I really appreciate says this about uh, the book as a whole. It says, Corinth, the most important city in Greece during Paul's day, was a bustling hub of worldwide commerce, degraded culture, and idolatrous religion. First, Corinth, First Corinthians reveals the problems, the pressures, and struggles of a church called out of a pagan society. Paul addresses a variety of problems in the lifestyle of the Corinthian church. Now listen to some of these problems. Factions, lawsuits, immorality, questionable practices, abuse of the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. In addition to, the, in, in addition to words of discipline, Paul shares words of counsel in answer to questions raised by the Corinthian believers. It goes on and says, the basic theme of this epistle is the application of the Christian principles on an individual and social level. Get this, the cross of Christ is a message that is designed to transform the lives of believers and make them different as people and as a corporate body from the surrounding world. But the Corinthians were destroying their Christian testimony because of immorality and disunity. So Paul wrote this letter as his corrective response to the news of the problems and disorders among the Corinthians. It was designed to refute improper attitudes and conduct and to promote a spirit of unity among the brethren in their relationships and worship. Are you starting to pick up this idea that the city of Corinth, and specifically the church, had some problems? Had some serious problems. And so what is Paul doing? He's saying, can I bring you back to center? Can I, can I bring you back to the whole point of this thing? And I don't know about you, but as I read this, I'm like, boy, this sure sounds like our modern day. We have a lot of those same issues going on. Which means that the solution that Paul gives is the same solution that we need. Here's one other thought from the Bible handbook. It says, Paul finds it very difficult to keep Corinth out of the church. Church, In other words, the city itself has now infiltrated the church. The lifestyle of the city has infiltrated the church. So the pagan lifestyle of Corinth exerts a profound influence upon Christians in that corrupt city. Problems of every kind plague them. 
In this disciplinary letter, Paul is forced to exercise his apostolic authority as he deals firmly with problems of divisiveness, immorality, lawsuits, selfishness, abuses of the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts, and and denials of the resurrection. This epistle is quite orderly in its approach as it sequentially addresses a group of problems that have come to Paul's attention. Paul also gives a series of perspectives on various questions and issues raised by the Corinthians in a letter. So they wrote a letter saying, Paul, we've got questions. What do we do with these? And he's like, glad you asked because I have some other concerns. I want to give you uh, three key themes in the book. And uh, a friend of mine, a Bible teacher, I had walked through the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says, out of all of his study, here is his summary of the three key themes of the book. And I think these are so profound. And these are, in other words, these are such a simple but a great enunciation to the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason I even want to bring these up is because as you come into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these same three themes are very prevalent. And I want to just keep hearkening back to them. And so I just want to give you a summary of his statements because I just think they are uh, well enunciated. So in seeking to understand the truth in any part of 1 Corinthians, it is good to keep in mind three overarching themes of the book. You ready for these? Number one, Jesus is the answer. So Paul's unmistakable point is that Jesus is the anchor of this letter. In fact, he is the answer to, get this, every issue and question that is raised. It does not matter what the problem may be. Jesus is the answer. Do you think that is possibly still true today? That no matter what issue you come to in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually comes back to the core message, which is Jesus. That he's bringing up all these side issues, you know, marriage and singleness, sexual immorality, idolatry, food sacrifice to idols, the Lord's Supper. He's bringing all these things up, but his answer to every single one of those is actually the same. Jesus, would you focus on Christ? Would you realize that he is to be preeminent? He is to be center. And when you allow him to be the fullness of your life, strangely, that begins to deal with every single problem. So the solution then is not, well, in this scenario, you need to do this. In this scenario, you need to do this. Over here, you should probably do this. And over here, here are three key things for a better life. Paul doesn't do those. Paul says the answer to every single problem in your life is Jesus. And that's still true today, folks. The answer to every single problem, the answer to every single addiction, the answer to every single pull of the culture in your life, the answer to every single sin, the answer to every, everything in your life is Jesus. Uh, the second major theme, number two, pride is the blockade. So Jesus is the answer, so then what stands against that? Pride. So here, here's the little summary statement. All of it is a constant reminder, that this, he, was, he was referencing some earlier stuff, but it's a constant reminder of the pride and the arrogance of the Corinthians. They did not have a multitude of problems. Consider this. Though Paul lists a whole bunch of things that they're struggling with, they actually do not have a multitude of problems. They only had one problem. And it was their pride. Pride is the essence of the carnal mind. 
The carnal or selfish or fleshly mind is the root of all spiritual immaturity. And spiritual immaturity will produce the fruit of all manner of the same kind of behavior that was being exhibited among the Corinthians. All of the different issues with which they are dealing go back to the same root, their pride. Pride will always be the blockade which prevents me from realizing all that Jesus can be in my life. He is the answer for everything. The message of 1 Corinthians is the same for all of the issues. Jesus is the answer. Pride is the blockade. And that is still true today. Do you realize that Jesus is the answer to every single one of your issues in life? Which means, well, why am I not experiencing that? Pride. And maybe if you want a different word, even than pride, it's independence. It's that when I am living independent of Christ, when I say, you know what, I can pull this thing off myself, and I live in this arrogance and live in this pride and live in this selfishness, and I'm all wrapped up and I'm turned within, and I'm only focused on myself and my issues and my thing and how I can pull it off and what I can do, and da, 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 then I'll never experience victory. I'll never experience spiritual growth. I'll never experience life when my focus is turned within myself. So Paul is coming to the church in Corinth and he says, look, you have, actually, yes, you have a a lot of issues. Just like I would look at a modern church and be like, "Uh, modern church, you have a lot of issues. But it actually goes back to the same root. There's actually only one major issue, and it's our pride. And the answer is the same. Jesus. So Jesus is the answer, and pride is always a blockade. And if I'm not actually walking in the fullness, if I'm not actually experiencing victory and triumph, is it because I'm actually trying to live independently of Jesus? Which is pride. And then the third major theme is the physical and the spiritual. So what one does in the physical will affect his or her spiritual life. And what one does in the spiritual will eventually be demonstrated in the physical. Which is a really profound thought that you are not a physical being with a spiritual tag on. You are physical and spiritual. And the one affects the other. And what happens in the physical is going to affect your spiritual. And what happens in the spiritual is going to affect your physical. And and you can't get out of that. Which I think is so beautiful. Why Christ came in the physical. Because you realize that our issue with sin is a spiritual issue. And yet, why didn't he deal with that spiritually? Why did Jesus have to physically come and die? Because sin is not merely spiritual, it's intertwined in the physical. So the God of the universe became physical, not just to deal with the spiritual, but to deal with the physical. And do you realize that the cross of Christ, though the cross of Christ was physical, and he physically died, it wasn't just a physical thing, it was a spiritual thing. Because there's an interplay between the two of those. So as you come to the letter then of 1 Corinthians, what you see is that there is a whole variety of problems and issues going on in the church, and yet ultimately they have one issue. It's themselves. It's their independence. It's their pride. And Paul says, To every single one of those issues. Do you know what the solution to that is? Jesus. Would you somehow 
Let Jesus just get right smack dab in the middle of your problem and just see what he does. Because if you put Jesus in the middle of that, he won't let it remain the same. Do you realize that's still true today? It actually doesn't matter what your idol is. It doesn't matter what your addiction is. It doesn't matter what your problem. It doesn't matter what your struggle. It doesn't, doesn't matter. The solution is the gospel of Christ. And when you allow the cross and the power of that gospel, that life of Christ, to get smack dab in the middle of your issues, it will solve. It will transform everything. Well, what's hindering that? Me. Which means I need to come to a place of surrender. I need to come to a place of death. And say, Lord, you've, you've, you've got to deal with this. Because in and of myself, I will only ever live in pride and arrogance and independence. But Lord, I need hope. I need help. Which means I need you. Which means I can't function independent of him. And yes, I love the fact that our country is all based on independence. Praise the Lord. I don't want to give that up. But do you realize spiritually, for you to live independent is death. You were never made to be independent. You weren't made to do your thing and, and pray that God would bless it. You were made helpless and desperate. And you, in order to function as a Christian, need his overwhelming ability to infiltrate your overwhelming helplessness. And in the mix of that, that that's the Christian life, folks. I can't. He can. And it's allowing his ability to somehow get involved in my inability. Which means I have to surrender. I have to depend. I have to seek. I have to walk by faith. And I have to allow the God of the universe to come and infiltrate my life. Because he is the answer. And the moment I want to walk in pride and the moment I want to walk in independence and, and say, you can sit this one out, God, I can handle it, that's death. Do you know what the solution to your life is? Jesus. And that sounds like a bumper sticker. But that's the truth. So, what I want to do is, <clears throat> I just want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 14, because we're going to be looking at this for the next several messages. I just want to, I just want to start giving you a taste of what we're about to walk into. Uh, so, just read this with me. This is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 14. And again, even just so you have it in your mind, this, this has been the working definition of idolatry, because you need to hear this. So, as we get into 1 Corinthians 10, you hear this tone, but idolatry is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. So the moment I walk in independence, the moment I walk in pride, and the moment I turn to anything besides Jesus to satisfy and meet my needs, that's called idolatry. So look at how Paul deals with idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. 
And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the, by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, says Paul, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Can I invite you over these next few weeks to join me in a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10? And if you want to start diving in, I would encourage you to do it. But maybe if you had some extra time, there's no pressure on this, but if you had some extra time, what if you just read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 over and over and over and over and over just to get it in your mind? What is Paul saying? What is Paul actually doing in the passage? Why is he so strong against this idea of you must flee from idolatry? And as he mentions in the first several verses, what is Paul's solution to idolatry? Jesus. Because he is only, he is the only, and will only ever be the only solution to our problem of idolatry. Could I encourage us to realize Jesus is the answer? Pride will always be the blockade. So as such, can we find ourselves in a position of humility and come before the Lord and say, Lord, would you search and try my heart? And Lord, would you be the answer to every single problem in my life? Every single addiction, every single distraction, every single idol, every single habit or sinful thought or behavior, Lord, I need you to plant yourself smack dab in the middle of my life. So Lord, here's my life. Have at it. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we need you. Lord, it's so easy to look at the church in, in Corinth and cluck our tongue and, tongue and just be like, wow, I can't believe the church was that bad. But Lord, we're so full of ourselves. We're so full of success and popularity. And Lord, the church today is so marred with sin. And in fact, we look more like the world than we look like you. Or as Leonard Ravenhill says, we are more afraid of holiness than we are of sin. That we're actually more comfortable around sin and the filth of the world than we are comfortable around you. And we just want to use you as, a, as an add-on to our life. We just want to make sure we get out of hell for free. And, and so we have our little card and our ticket to heaven. When in reality, it's not affecting our lives. And yet, Lord, you are interested not just in us passing a test or us having a get out of hell free card you are interested 
and a life that reflects you. A life that is wholly given unto you and a life that is walking in purity and righteousness and holiness. Lord, we cannot do that in and of ourselves. Lord, I confess that we as the body of Christ have been walking in pride and selfishness and independence for, for far too long. Lord, would you somehow get into our brains that the answer to every single one of the church's problems is Jesus? That the solution to every single one of my problems is Jesus? I'm not, Lord, there's no sin, there's no addiction, there's no habit, there's no behavior, there's no thought that is so great that you can't transform it. Because the gospel is efficacious. It is powerful to work. That the cross of Christ is sufficient for every single one of our needs. So Lord, will you remind us that we do not have special problems. We have a special God. And would you turn our lives, our churches, and this world upside down. Pray all this in your holy and precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.